of death and life is in the tongue. Please pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the preached word. Lord, we confess that we have filled our mouths with evil. We are liars who have rejected your truth so that we can create a false world that serves ourselves. We are slanderers who malign and curse others who are made in your image, and we despise them because they are not made in our own image. We are grumblers who use the tongue you created and the breath you have given us to spit in your face and declare our frustration with your plan and your provision, O God of life. How vain and worthless are our words, and how thoroughly do we speak evil. Lord, be merciful to us. We rejoice because even though we spoke evil to you, you have spoken good to us. You have sent your word to us, Jesus, the word made flesh, to die in our stead. Your perfect and holy word in the place of us who speak evil. When he speaks the life-giving words, it is finished. We who speak death are saved. Guard our tongue, O Lord. Consecrate them for your holy purpose. Cause us to speak life-giving words as a redeemed people. Lead us not, lead us through the preached word to speak not words of vain earthly wisdom, but lively words of heavenly wisdom that are first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, that we might speak peace as Christ has spoken peace to us. Give our brother, as he gets up here to speak your word, holy, life-giving words that would lead us to walk in newness of life. Give us ears to hear and a heart to love your word. In the name of your precious and holy Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Could you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5? And I did fail to mention that during the announcement, these chairs are set apart for a reason. And the main reason is because there's going to be a wedding here in about a little over an hour. And those of you that might know Danielle Racy's or the Racy's family, they want to invite you to stay for the ceremony. You're very welcome to do that. So uh, feel free to enjoy the, that if you're able to come and, and have a knowledge of Danielle and the family. They would be overjoyed to have you. And, and I'm hearing an amen back there. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, 
there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. I want to show you a picture if I can real quick. Well, there's one right here. Let's stop here for one second. These, this is where we get our best popular knowledge or what we hear about the most regarding vows is wed, a wedding vow. I happened to be in attendance at this wedding. It was in Texas about a year ago uh, between Ben and his wife Amanda. I'll say maybe more about that later. But this is what will be taking place to do to, today as well. Two people will make vows to each other before God and before people. Here we have in the book of Ecclesiastes some reference to the seriousness of making a vow. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he, that is God, has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. In other words, don't change your mind. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Vows are serious before God. When uh, my kids were little, a couple of them started taking care of dogs at the top of the street with a lady that had, I think, about three or four German shepherds. And they just fell in love with dogs. And my littlest one, my daughter, Melissa, was begging me for a dog. And I just said, no way. We have five kids in a little home having a dog, it's just not going to work, and I don't personally have a great uh, fondness for dogs, excuse me, dog lovers, but it just wasn't going to work. Well, anyway, in place of a dog, we bought uh, her, particularly, a, what is that? What is that? A cockatiel. I thought a parakeet was a cockatiel, and a cockatiel was a parakeet, but I was told differently. So you can tell me the difference sometime, but I suppose they're in the same bird family. Well, anyway, uh, I bought them uh, my daughter, particularly Melissa, a cockatiel, and she was very excited about it. Now, see, this cockatiel is inside of a what? Cage. A cage. And uh, that cage would stay in my office. Like I said, we had a small house. There weren't many places to put it. So every morning, this bird was with me as I'm studying, praying, etc., in my office. Like this office, see, right here. And at times, I would feel... Sympathetic towards the bird being caged in. So I wanted to let the bird out of the cage. So that it could have some liberty and fly around and pop around and just stay inside a cage. That would be terrible. So I thought, let's let this bird out to myself. So I let this bird out. And I did it from time to time. But I didn't pay any attention to it after I opened the cage. So little did I know that I apparently had my to my office a little bit of jar and not knowing where the bird went I didn't even wasn't even thinking about it and maybe two hours later I'm deciding that I'm going to go out and get the newspaper and have breakfast so I dress up uh, put uh, go go to get my coat on and as I'm going down the hallway and I'm taking a left hand turn to go into uh, the closet where my coat was and when I took a step guess what Yes, I crushed the bird. I crushed the bird that I wanted to give liberty to. The bird was... And it just 
my, my daughter almost like magic. She heard the first quack. She came running out of her bedroom and she goes, Oh, what did you do? Oh, what did you do? The only thing I could say to her was, I'll get you a dog. <laughs> and that brought the decibels down about maybe half. Then afterward I said to myself, what did I just promise? A dog. So a couple of weeks later I was on my first mission trip overseas. I call home and guess what they got? A new visitor in the house. It's a dog. I'm like, oh good, I'll, I'll stay a little longer on the mission trip. Well anyway, I had made, you could say, a vow and that had to be fulfilled. It's important that we stick by what we say. Let's, let's look at a definition of what a vow is. Here's an example of some of the vows that we might take, or an oath in, in a courtroom, uh, a wedding, we already mentioned that, or some other sort of thing that uh, you might think of that you might have to take an oath uh, legally. Um, but let's, let's look at it, what it, uh, a definition of, a, of it would be. Uh, a vow is a solemn promise. It's one of deep dedication and is sometimes accompanied with an oath. In other words, it's sort of ratcheting up what you might say verbally that needs to sort of be emphasized with seriousness, with consecration, with commitment that it will be fulfilled, and you're going on record, so to speak. When you're taking a vow, you're going on record. This isn't just simply a statement that you're making, but you're sort of rubber stamping it by classifying it as a vow. And here's a couple of passages in the Bible that tells us about vow. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, and do not, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Boy, that tells us how serious sin is, in vow and sin connecting to one another. Next, Numbers 30, verse 2. I was going to read the whole chapter, uh, and the whole chapter has to do with vow-taking. And uh, one has reference to a, a child in a home who takes a vow. The vow has to be endorsed by the father. Or if a woman in a marriage is going to make a vow, the husband has to ratify that for the vow to be considered classified and acceptable. And this is what verse 2 says at the beginning of Deuteronomy, uh, number 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now let's look at some examples of people in the Bible who made vows. Probably before looking at that, I bet you're thinking already, who in the Bible made vows? Well, here's a few of them. There's many more than this, but I've selected, I think, maybe the top three possibly. And this is the one that everybody should be familiar with, um, all of you probably. And she, this would be Hannah, vowed a vow and said, Hannah, of course, was without child, married, and she prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is an example of a vow that is made before God 
is if God, if you do this, if you meet my condition of allowing me to bear a child, then I will give that child up to you in a consecrational way who will serve you all of his days. The next one, this sounds radical, of course, but Jephthah here made a vow to the Lord. Judges 11. If you give the Ammonites, this is in battle, into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So whatever comes out of the door will become a sacrifice of a burnt offering. And you probably know who met him first when he returned from the victory of the battle over the Ammonites. It was his daughter. And as soon as he saw his daughter, he could have probably or sentimentally have said, oh no, I can't keep that oath. I can't keep that vow that I'm going to offer my daughter as a burnt sacrifice to God. But because of what a vow is to an Israelite, he had to keep his vow. He was obligated to. And we know that he did offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Now, it's questionable whether or not she was literally put on the altar and burned, or more likely that she had to sacrifice childbearing the rest of her life and had to remain as a celibate woman who never married and therefore would never have conceived. And that's why others joined her in her mourning for months on the mountains as she retreated and mourned over her future. And here's another one. This is in Joshua 9. It has to do with the Gibeonites. When the Israelites were invading the land, God was with them in their triumphs over the the uh, tribes and nations that were in the land of Israel. And the Gibeonites could foresee that they would not be able to endure a war with the Israelites. So they came up with an idea that they would try to trick the Israelites by wearing uh, um, worn-out shoes and they brought um, moldy bread like they were traveling a distance from out of the area and they were pleading with the Israelites to spare them. And this is how it reads. Three days, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors. Now this is what they're discovering afterwards, living near them. Well, what did the Israelites do for the Gibeonites? They, they had told them that we would spare you, that we would use you as servants to us once we get in the land and our enemies are destroyed. So the Gibeonites had that vow promised to them that they would be spared. Verse 17. So the Israelites set out on the third day. They came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephara, Beeroth, and Kirath, and Jerum. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. So even though the Gibeonites had lied to them, what meant more than holding their lie against them was that they had made a vow to them and that they were going to honor that vow. Now when you think of vows in the Bible, what do you think is the most popular vow um, that you would, would know of? Who, who would ta- have taken a vow that were classified as vow takers, so to speak? The what? Begins with the letter N. What did you say? Nazarite. Nazarite. Right. The vow of a Nazarite. 
What was the vow of the Nazarite? It was a vow that that individual would be consecrated to the Lord. How? By not cutting their hair, by not drinking any alcohol, and not touching a dead body. Those were the three things that had to be maintained during their lifetime. Sometimes vows were temporary. Others were lifelong. And in this case, in Numbers chapter 6, it would be a lifelong commitment of keeping the vow. And in verse 12 it says that if, if there's defilement that occurs, then all the days that were before shall be lost because his defilement took place. So that's symbolical. That's, that's quite important. Uh, for us to understand. And I want to emphasize the importance of words that come out of our mouth. We might say to one another, I promise I'll be there, or uh, I'll, I'll see it later, or something like, I'm going to be praying for you. And I wonder how many times we actually do carry some of those things out that we say. Now, I'm not saying that they are vows, but in a sense, everything that a believer should say should be something that's trustworthy, Right? It shouldn't be lessened because it has to have attached to it, I swear to God, which I don't think a Christian should use that language, or I have to put my hand on a Bible to sort of endorse what I'm going to say, to give you a confirmation that this is really going to happen. I'm, I'm not fooling around. This is real. And I'm assuring you of that. The Bible says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. That should be good enough. Just simply what we say should be held as the highest order of expectation. If we say it, we need to live it out. I try to be careful myself. I'm not always successful at this, but I try to think twice before I say to somebody who needs prayer or is going through a situation, when I say to them, I'm going to be praying for you, I really want to follow through with that. I don't want to just say that. People like to hear that. I like to hear that when somebody says, Hey, I'm praying for you, brother. I get encouraged by that. That's a blessing to know. But if I'm saying to somebody, I'm praying for, I'll be praying for you, and I don't pray for you, then shame on me. I think if we take God's Word seriously and realize how important it is before God. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The ears of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, is over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. So God hears and sees everything. Jesus said, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now when we think of Nazarites, there may be a connection between the word... Nazarite, and where was Jesus not born, but where was he raised? In Nazarene. He's called Jesus the Nazarene. Nazarene, Nazarite. Nazarite, Nazarene. Could it be that there's a connection there? And if there was anybody that ever lived, that lived a life with full consecration, whose word was dependable, unalterable, immutable, unchangeable, it was the words of the Lord Himself. How dependable is God's Word? Jesus says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are truth. When they heard Jesus speak, they says, Never a man spoke like this man. And they says, He's not like the scribe. He speaks with authority. With authority. 
We could never speak to, to that level because obviously we're not God in the flesh like He was. We weren't, we never will be as He was on earth, never will we here in this world ever be perfect, though we strive to be like Him. And I, I want to challenge us as Nazarites to be like the Nazarene. The one who was faithful to his word. Listen again what Ecclesiastes say. When you avow a vow to God, all things are said before the Lord. Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. You know, the Bible says the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. We can't always think that God looks upon us in this constant, gentle, smiley way. And I don't want to give any impressions that God is furious at us or angry in some emotional way that He wants to take vengeance on us. I don't want, want you to think that at all. But at the same time, I don't want you to, us to think that God is sort of passively indifferent to some of the shams and some of the trickeries and, and deceits that maybe we practice of consciously or unconsciously. I love what the Lord says about Nathaniel. He says, Behold an Israelite. Can you finish it off? In whom there is no guile or any deceit. What a commendation. I think that I'm, I have some deceit in me. I know I've got to judge myself. I know I've got to kind of ooze that out of me so that I can be whole before my brothers and sisters and before the Lord. If I'm going to be a true follower of Jesus, I want to be like Him. And just think of Jesus. He says, all that the Father has told me, I have told you. All that I have seen of the Father, I'm showing you. There's nothing that Jesus did or said that wasn't exactly in harmony with what the Father had intended Him to do. He says, I always do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now just think if you tried to apply that verse to yourself. I always do everything that is pleasing in God's sight. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are opened unto their prayers. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Romans 14 verse 8. So we are the Lord's always at all times. And He's always seeing us. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of a Nazarite am I? Why would I take a vow? Well, when the Lord saved you, you were compelled and drawn. Compel them to come in. And the Holy Spirit worked in your life and drew you to Himself. And then when you, when you came to Christ, you embraced Him. And then you found the true love of your life, so to speak. One that will be constant, one that will be faithful, one that will never leave you or never forsake you. How could we not want to respond to that kind of love? When you think of His commitment to us, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. For what purpose? That He might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the Word. That He might present her to Himself a what? A holy bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. That's the kind of concentration, consecration Jesus had to us in this world. He had a purpose. Everything He said, everything He did was to accomplish the will of the Father. A true, true Nazarite was lived through this lifetime undefiled. We're asked to do the same thing. Even when we try to rescue our brothers and sisters that may fall, or when we ourselves may fall into trial or temptation, we can defile our garments. 
But the scripture tells us to not be defiled by the world. Because that's going to sullen our testimony before God. I should and you should be more interesting, interested in how you represent Christ than how you're representing yourself. Because when it comes to me, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. It's, in, it's insignificant in comparison to the one who I claim that I am representing. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So that the Lord, people see the Lord in me. I'm representing Him. And they mock me out as a Christ follower, as a Nazarite following the Nazarene, who we're expected to be like. It says in 1 John 2, 6, He that abideth in Him ought Himself also so to walk, even as He walked. We're expected to walk like Christ walked. Now you might say, boy, that is a high standard. It certainly is. But let's not limit the power of the Holy Spirit that works in on works in us. It tells us in Romans 8.29, For whom He did for no, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. How could you and I possibly be like Christ? Predestinated to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. And that's not talking about future glory merely. It's talking about present transformation that should be taking place in our life. I should be more like Jesus today than I was five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. That's why the Bible says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that that by two immutable things we might have a strong consolation. Why we have the security that we do is based on two things. One is on the person and character of God himself. God is not a man that he should lie. God doesn't need to change his mind. He doesn't repent or is required to repent. God is faithful. That's his name. That's who he is. And secondly, it tells us in Hebrews 6 that what he says is and who he is is confirmed by an oath. And that oath is something that sort of endorses the person of what they're saying. So that gives to you and I a strong consolation so that we can have refuge, we can have hope, we get an anchor for our soul. We should be the most secure people on earth. Lots of things shake, the, shake people up, including us. But of all the people of the world, it's the children of God that have a firm foundation. None of these things move me, Paul says. Even death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? That's the most fearful thing, I think, that that, uh, presents itself to all of us. But even that, it tells us in Corinthians, that all things are yours, whether life or death, things present or things to come, all things are yours. Because of what? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. So having a relationship with the Lord God Himself, trusting Him, believing Him, what His Word says. That's why it's so important. We were talking a little bit about this at youth camp during devotion times when it says, it's a powerful verse. 
very deep, I think. Colossians 2.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. How do you do that? How do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Oh man, if that word can just seep in there. What does is, what is Jesus say? Let these things sink deep down into your ears. That's His words. So maybe that's what is meant when it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When Jesus says, let these things, that's what He's saying, sink deep down into your ears. What a statement Jesus is saying. Let them sink deep down into your ears. Getting into your heart, getting into your being, being a part of you, having that new man renewed day in and day out. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We are and can be the true Nazarites here in this world. When we vow a vow to God, we are able by God's grace to be able to fill it, to, to pay it. If I owe you something... And I've had a lot of people borrow money from me, and I've never gotten them back. My father was a very generous uh, restaurant owner in, in, in the inner city, and there were a lot of poor people. There were a lot of uh, alcoholics and troubled people, uh, welfare people that would come in. And he would give them breaks so many times. My mother would scold them because she thinks uh, that we were broke because they were broke. And he, he, see, they, he, they would tell my dad, oh, well, I'll pay you next week and I get my paycheck. Well, we'd never see the person after that. But it happened many, many times. But as us as children of God, if we say we're going to do something, do it. It's really that simple. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, I, I know that the, to vow something, and, and we have to keep in mind what Jesus says about, about oaths. I mean, a group like the Mennonites, for instance, they don't even at weddings or courtrooms, they would not raise their hand before God as, as, as you're supposed to when you take an oath. Raise your hand before God and say these words after me or whatever. They wouldn't do that because they think it's a violation of what Jesus said. And I can in some ways appreciate that. But looking at it from a societal standpoint, I think that there's a necessity at times in certain circles that we're, we're treated as a citizen. And as a citizen, these would be things that the law would require of us. And I think whether I have to raise my hand or not raise my hand, my word should be good either way. I should pay what I owe. I should do what I say. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. We were hearing in the book of James chapter 3 about the tongue and how deceitful that can be and how we can say things that we really don't believe or say things that we're really not going to fulfill. And it bothers me when I have people tell me that certain things, like I'm going to give you a call and you never get a call, or I'll call you right back and and they don't call back and... uh, uh, I forgive you, brothers and sisters, if you're guilty of any of the above, but uh, uh, I, I just think it's important that we be uh, uh, so true to what we say rather than making light of it. I think it would really change a lot in our life. And I, I think, in, in those of us that are a little older, I think we've seen over the course of time how in modern days, in, in days even recent past, people more tend more to lie. And a handshake is no longer good enough to confirm a word. Hey, I give you my word. This is it. You know, my handshake to you. Um, those things don't exist anymore because 
Lying is almost so common that you have to try to interpret the lie as to what's behind the lie so you can get really get to the truth of it. Scripture says all men are liars. The Bible says the poison of asthma is under their lips. I got stopped in Connecticut a few years ago. I had to make a, a, a cell phone call for directions when we didn't have GPSs. And the police uh, pulled me over. And he says, were you on your cell phone? And I said, no. I'm like, how? a few minutes later, I said, how did I say that? <laughs> Just like I felt like I was Adam back in the garden. No, I didn't. Have, I didn't you know. I, oh, man, talking about having yourself exposed. That was it right there. I saw the inside of me, how bad it was. And I had to apologize. There were three brothers in the car with me. <laughs> I said, I, I was, I was so, I was so deceived about my deception that I said, did brother, did I just say that I wasn't on the cell phone? <laughs> you know, it, and I wasn't losing my mind. I, I'm just that sinful nature just kind of came right out of me. No, I'm not guilty. I didn't do that. See, we are, we have a defense mechanism, all of us. We want to try to, uh, our pride. Pride goes before a, a, a fall, right? God hates pride. Uh, pride is the downfall of man. And, uh, I think pride and, and, and lying and deception, they all link together. So that we have a tendency to not fulfill what we say. And if we're going to be vowing people, it, 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 like I, I want to sort of say vows. Everything we say is vowish, you know. Because remember, this is an Old Testament book written to Israelites in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we, the Bible says that He gives the Spirit without measure. Uh, we could, you could say that we have a better, a greater advantage than would be an Israelite in the Old Testament, and that the Spirit of God has come into us in fullness. So I need to let the Spirit of God move in me, like the Scripture says about, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Because the Holy Spirit is teaching me a correct way to live, what to say, and how to carry it out. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. But sometimes I become my Holy Spirit, if you will. I kind of brush him aside, I ignore him, and I kind of live my life with the Holy Spirit somewhere in the background. That's why the Scripture says, despise not prophesying. That is, don't don't make the Word of God become irrelevant or insignificant to you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's be Nazarite in that we're vowing before God to be consecrated with Him. That we don't want to be intoxicated with things that would cause us to be idolatrous and get away from Him. To let our hair grow in some kind of a beautific fashion that we are more interested in our earthly looks and our appearances than we are in glorifying God and that we're not willing to touch a dead body that is that we do not want to defile ourselves with the world in the sinful ways that it entertains. God has chosen us to be a special people unto Himself above all the peoples that are upon the earth. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. You are a special person because God has saved you. You are one of His very own. We were singing some beautiful lyrics up here about who we are in Christ. That as Christ, as God loved Christ, so Christ loves us. And God loves us like He loves His own Son. We were singing those words. Man, we, we have 
We have some very important cargo that we are transporting. We've got Christ in us in the world. We're not just out there on our own. We're accompanied by Him wherever we go. He assures us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Bible says, All the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. His word is immutable. It cannot be altered. And that's the kind of stability that we have. And therefore we can speak, as the Bible says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if any man minister, let him do it according to the gifts that the Lord has given him. If any man, any woman, any boy, girl, any child of God speaks, let them speak as the oracles of God. That's amazing. And in a sense, we don't need to have an endorsement of vowing or an oath to confirm what we're saying, especially in our everyday communications with one another. But let us elevate our everyday communication to a level like a vow or an oath. So what we say we're true to. Jesus often would challenge and say, what I said, I've said. I'm willing to, to meet whatever, whatever consequences there are to what I've said. I wonder if we would be like that. If our words were scrutinized, how would they come back down the road? We said this? Did we really say that? Oh, the tongue is unruly, isn't it? And unfortunately, uh, that's why it says right at the end here, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should be God, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Then in the seventh verse, he says, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. That's a confusion that goes on sometimes in, 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 our, in our background that contributes to our deceitfulness and our lying. There's no such thing as white lies in the family of God. I hope we know that. But God is the one you must fear. That's how it concludes. Just like the book of uh, Ecclesiastes itself says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. God is the one you must fear. It's not a fear of dread that He's going to punish me, but it's a fear of awe and reverence and respect that I'm living before the true and the living God. It's amazing that when you think of it that the Bible says that God is in you, the hope of glory. In you dwells the Holy Spirit of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what should be expected that comes out of our mouth? It comes from the inward man. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So may what we speak be in the category of what a true Nazarite would be. That it would be true and onerous, like a a great Nazarite, the Lord Jesus Christ, who separated himself in time so that he could come alongside of God's people and now he separated himself in heaven. He says, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified. How did Jesus sanctify himself after his resurrection? He has set himself aside so that he could be a minister to his people here on earth for us, his children. That's a powerful truth. I sanctify myself that what my people also might be saying. He's talking about his glorification. So when he left the world, he didn't leave leave us as orphans. Yes, he did send the Holy Spirit to accompany us. 
but he's right there at the right hand of God. We need to have the eyes of Stephen so we can see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God that we might say, wow, the eyes of the Lord are upon me. May I live like you, Lord Jesus. Give me help. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminders, Lord, of how important it is that we, we live